Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org, .il, for helping make this class happen. Okay, everybody, good morning. I'm so happy to see everybody show up bright and bushy-tailed. It's been a couple weeks since we've seen each other. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world out there, um, but sometimes it's worthwhile to just push that all aside and, and, and delve into the story. And in fact, as we'll see before we get to the end, that's a lot of the appeal of Chassidut. There's a lot of the appeal of Chassidut. Is they, what I want to do today is actually look a little bit at this question of where does this movement come from? I know we started this last week, but, but I want to look at the, um, some of the socio-cultural origins or at least the, um, the context out of which it grew. I want to trace the arc with Val Shem Tov himself as a personality, look at um, the transition to what's known as the second and third generations, and then we'll end up with the question of, well, why did this work? I mean, there have been many other movements in history, in the history of the Jews, in the history of the world, um, that came, had their moment, and went. And the question really is, why, why does it work? And a lot of it has to do with the same reason that I imagine all of you slept yourselves out of the house today, despite perhaps friends and neighbors or a voice inside your own head that said, it's better to stay home, right? Which is that sometimes that we have to choose to construct the world in which we want to live, even when the world around us doesn't cooperate. So we'll come back to that. So just as a reminder or, or to touch a few key points, let's remember that the social context out of which Hasidut grew is socioeconomic polarization. Now, we're talking about Polish Jewry. We're talking about this era in which the leaseholding system has become all but feudal. Now, just even between the Jews, as we were speaking about, that you know, a grand leaseholder might have 400 or more subleases under their control, which gives him almost absolute power. And so we have the rise of these, these uh, sort of financial magnates who on one hand, we're able to serve as the shtadlanim, as we spoke about, this model of political intercessor who were able to work with the non-Jewish powers of the day in order to be paid off in the coin of the goodwill toward their fellow Jews, which was unique and was a positive role, by and large, that they played. At the same time, there was a, there was a tremendous gap, which today we call it the wealth gap, right? There was a tremendous gap opening up between one layer of society and the vast majority of Jews, sorry, and that doesn't lead to good intra-communal politics within Jewish communities, especially as we spoke about um, what seems to be from some of the moral literature of the day, a consistent attempt to take over the courts in order, you know, like once you control the courts, then, you know, evil just becomes good business, um, as they say. So, so this is a critical piece, and that's why the roles of the, um, the mochiach, as we spoke about these three sort of types of low, second-level rabbinic authorities, the magid, the Mochiach and the Baal Shem, right? The, the Magid was the one who was like the, the itinerant preacher, storyteller, who might serve in one town as the rabbi who's going to give the sermon. In another town, he might entertain the young. And in a third town, he might educate people just through parables and other teachings, right? The Mochiach was the moral voice. We gave an example, if you recall, of one who actually had a letter of recommendation from the Council of Forelands that would allow him to step onto the bima. Just imagine the rabbi's reaction, right? <laughs> on, on Shabbat morning, when the Mochiach said, Rabbi, 
I'd like to say a word. I don't know if you've ever been in shul when there's like the other, like the chief rabbi of town comes in. It's this uh, never a happy moment. When it's like, who, who, who gets to speak right now, right? So, but he had the authority to stand up and chastise whomever it was who needed chastising, and he was backed by the Council of Foreland. So picture the president of the shul and all the other wealthy men sitting in the front as he's haranguing them for oppressing the poor. Right? And last but certainly not least, this role of Baal Shem. Right? This sort of mix between like, natural healer, um, homegrown mystic, and magician. The person to whom you took everything from your spiritual to your physical to your psycho-emotional ailments, who was able to serve the needs of a vast group of people who were, let's just say, under service. Right? Rural Jews scattered throughout these vast Polish lands who weren't part of the major town communities, didn't have the wealth to attract a rabbi and give them a position. So that's a critical piece of the mix we're speaking about. Together with that, yeah, Chuck. Yeah. So, I mean, they're still there. They're still there, and, and they, they're becoming increasingly urbanized, that class. It's interesting that that, that will be the class from which the, uh, the Haskalah really draws its roots. Um, but there's, the, there's been hard times since the, the Turkish wars, right, beginning. Remember, we had 1648 in Khmelnytsky, which we saw pretty quickly the Jews were forced to rebuild because there was no refuge to which they could flee. Um, and then within 10 years after that, the Finnish-Russian Wars. And then following that, we're going to have another round with the Turks and then the, what's called the Haidemax, which is a new round of Cossacks. Like basically, the social fabric is being pummeled by various invasions and internal disruptions. Not bad enough to collapse, but it means that poverty is increasing. Also, one could argue that a feudal system based on what's known as latifundia, the concentration of land, or in this case, the concentration of power over land, right, into ever smaller numbers of hands, will produce poverty. Right? The middle class always gets squeezed out because it's in the interest of the magnates to have basically serfs and them. So they do exist to a lesser degree, but they, they, they play a lesser role in the social fabric, therefore. So, yeah. Enforcement in what sense? People don't, so people don't pay income tax. The primary tool of enforcement, as we've spoken about and we'll see again today, is the ban, social exclusion, which has gradations. Has gradations, meaning you, know, you, you don't just kick somebody out altogether. Um, that's, the that's the primary tool of intra-communal. There are situations, and you have to check them each in their own case, various communities, who have a direct relationship with the civil authority. Because remember, paying the taxes is in the interest of the civil authority as well. But that is something which is beyond the scope of our discussion. The primary intra-communal tool is the ban, which will become much more pressing if we get to the rise of the Berlin Enlightenment, because it proves to be a breaking point for the entry into modern society. And then there's a question of to what extent Jewish communal authorities can access the civil power that's available to them, um, which, as we're going to see, is not so simple. Um, in the end of the day, that, that will be their downfall. Um, okay, so the socioeconomic polarization, decline of rabbinic authority, this we've spoken about repeatedly. It's not just, right, where I told you guys that the, 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 uh, the wonderful acronym, Rosheha Bishochad Yishpotu, that rabbi stands for, right, its leaders 
judge through bribes, right? It's a pasuk. It's a pasuk, but it's, it's an acronym for rabbi. And obviously, as soon as you can come up with an acronym like that, it's bad news for the, oh, you want me to write that down? No, I can't. I'm sorry. Because um, I'm just going gonna, gonna to mangle the spelling right now, and I don't want to spend the brain space on it. Sorry. It's a no coffee day. Um, the, so once you have a vacuum of rabbinic authority, there's a much bigger problem coming, which, which maybe, I, um, maybe I should add to this at the risk of overwhelming you with information. But the Baal Shem Tov dies in 1760, according to tradition. Four years later, the Polish authorities will disband the, four -year count, the four, Council of Four Lands. The Council of Four Lands basically ends at the same time as the, as the Baal Shem Tov dies because it's part of a larger trend that the states within Europe, I mean, Poland's itself not long, for Poland has eight more years after that to exist, as we'll speak about when we get further on, but, um, but this is part of a larger trend amongst the European states that are going to move toward what's known as ap uh, enlightened absolutism, the creation of a true centralized authoritarian state. And the thing that the authoritarian state will not tolerate is separate, separate communal structures. Right? Hang on one second. Remember, in the Middle Ages, the fact that the Jews were a corporate entity, that they dealt with their own laws and they had their own communal infrastructure, right? that, that was a benefit because then they took care of their own business. They were easy to keep separate and identifiable even when they weren't in the ghetto. And when you wanted to collect your taxes, you just had to go to one Jew. One Jew, this is what your community owes. I don't really care how you distribute it amongst your community. At best, I'll take a census to know how many of you are so I can soak you for as much as possible. But I'm not interested in your politics. But what was in the Middle Ages seen as the ideal sort of status for the Jews in the era, the sort of early enlightened era of, of enlightened absolutism, will become seen as a state within a state. Remember, the hallmark of enlightened absolutism is the concentration of all power in the monarch. And therefore, having a communal infrastructure like the Council of Four Lands, which is exercising real power over the Jews, is, is not acceptable. The Council of Four Lands, uh, as we spoke about, was the end of a process that basically began in the middle of the 16th century of consolidation, it's a logical process. Every community has its bait deen, its court, for, for adjudicating its own issues, be they ritual, be they tax-oriented, whatever. You know, Jewish law doesn't make distinctions. But what's going to happen if our community has a question with your community? Like, where's the boundary? Do these people live in our community or your community? So who is going to adjudicate between our two courts? So it's almost inevitable that a larger, higher court will emerge. So when you figure that that process goes on for about 50, 100 years, what emerges from that, together with the increase in transportation and communication, together with the rise of um, the financial power of certain lay authorities. Remember, the Council of Foreland is driven by lay authorities. They have a rabbinic team, so to speak. But it is not. It's a mistake to think of this as a rabbinic council. It's a lay council which recognizes rabbinic authority and employs rabbinic authority when it sees fit. Jews. These are Jews. This is what Simon Dubno, famous Jewish historian, right, um, saw as the ideal of Jewish government in exile. So much so, if people are familiar, he proposed an alternative to Zionism, which was basically territorial autonomy. That you could indeed be a state within a state. Whatever. They, that's a discussion for a, a later time. Can you kind of clarify the difference between uh, Christian Mongolia 
No, no, there's two, there's, there's two things there. I'm glad you asked the question. When I'm speaking about taxes right now, I'm talking about the Jews owe taxes. <laughs> Jews owe taxes. Everybody owes taxes. The Jews owe more taxes. Why? Because they're the Jews, right? And, and, and as we spoke about last week, the church and the Jews are the two easy sources of taxation within Poland right now, and the church is somewhat inviolate in the eyes of the nobility, so that leaves you with the Jews. There is another element which the Jews are also involved in, which is tax farming, which is that if you want to raise money from the Polish peasants, you've got to go out door to door. Excuse me, Vladislav, we'd like to collect your money, right? So the average nobleman is ill-equipped to do that and, of course, has no desire. And so therefore, there can be a tax farming situation which you'll say to the local Jew, I know that I could get 10,000 zlotys from this village. You take whatever you want and give me 10,000 zlotys. Or even better, you give me 10,000 zlotys, this is the way it usually works, up front, and then you can take whatever you want. Because then I, as a nobleman, have the cash in the bank, I don't have to worry about it. You, as the Jew, can use whatever means you have at your disposal, including civil authority, to get it. Tax farming in Poland was not as common. It was mostly... That was a, a product of the earlier Middle Ages. What was happening in Poland, as we said, is leaseholding. Right? I have the, as a right as a Jew, I have the sole exclusive right to, to brew or distill alcohol. That's a very powerful and, and lucrative lease to hold. <coughs> right? Or I may control the mills, or I may control the lumber trade. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so the, the last piece of... Um, of quite important context, of course, is the, the stirrings of the Romantic era. And I'm not going to go too much into the, the uh, nature of the Romantic era since, since this is a very early time, but, but when we start seeing things in Hasidut like um, putting forward the ecstatic experience, sometimes in opposition to intellectual analysis, or placing um, nature at the center of the divine relationship. Right, the Valshemto would go out into the fields to meditate. Rabbi Nachman says famously, "You should seek God in the in the forest, etc." These types of, and of course, ecstatic, emotive prayer. These are hallmarks of a larger social movement within Europe at the time, which is that they, a sense that the wisdom of the heart is something which has been neglected and it needs to be brought back to the fore in art, in literature, etc. And and Hasidut, even though for the Balshemtov's area in 1760 dies is a little early for the Romantic era. It usually is associated more with the 19th century than the 17th, sorry, than the 18th. Um, nevertheless, as Hasidut actually turns into a movement, it will be riding a larger wave of Romanticism, which will give it a lot of uh, oomph, for lack of a better word. That, and what goes hand in hand with that is a, a certain anti-clericalism that is a product of the intellectual side of the Enlightenment. People don't trust the, the, the priests in the Christian world anymore. And priests are really just religious authorities judged, as Spinoza said, people who use superstition and illusion to gain power through fear. Right? And there will be much of that criticism leveled by the Hasidim toward the rabbinic establishment as well. So that's sort of by way of, of setting the context. So hopefully, think of it as the Petri dish out of which Hasidut emerges. That maybe is not a metaphor I want to be relying on right now. Okay, uh, other... Uh, other uh, questions or comments before we get into the story of the Baal Shem Tov? They, they shouldn't have this from a long time ago, but sure. there also the um, distribution of the information became more available. Became so, more so, the learning by the greater community. 
We're going to speak about the role, I mean, the democratization of knowledge that came with the printing press has been an ongoing process. Um, and th those, the Magidim and the Mochim definitely lived off of this ability to produce pamphlets, et cetera. We spoke about it in other contexts previously. There's a different type of shift of, uh, that's going to happen with Hasidut, as we'll see, both in terms of actual printing, but also in, in, um, instead of a democratization of knowledge, there's going to be a shift in a relationship to its value. Or what we would today, we would say there is a offering of different types of intelligences. But I want to wait until we actually get to the movement to, to get to that. Other questions or comments on the background before we get going? Okay, so we already introduced Baal Shem Tov, but never hurts to do such things twice. Right, Rabbi Yisrael Ben Eliezer is born approximately 1700. If you recall, right, in a small town in Podolia. Podolia is... Um, the eastern border area of what is today Ukraine, which at the time had suffered repeated wars with the Turks. Um, it was only then beginning to really recover from the devastation of the Turkish-European wars, right? They, they stopped them at the gates of Vienna, but that didn't mean that Ukraine didn't fall completely under the reign of the Turks. He told the story about how his father was kidnapped and taken away and offered to be discovered, his wisdom was discovered by one of the advisors to the sultan, and he was offered a beautiful maiden to marry. Of course, in his religiosity, he refused. And when he revealed this to this maiden, she so deeply valued his piety that she set him free and sent him home. And he, was, he received a prophecy from Elijah saying that you will, because of your piety and your self-control, you will bring a son into the world who will bring great light. Right? And I pointed out to you guys that this sets the stage that the Baal Shem Tov's life is bound up with what the academics call hagiography. Or hagiography, actually, I think it's a hard G. Um, the you tell stories, but not just fantastic mythic stories. They're stories that make a person larger than life in order that we can understand that the, the impact they actually have. Remember, we spoke about this a little last week. But I, first of all, never really know who was here. Second of all, there has been a couple weeks. Um, it's very important in history to do some level of archaeology. You do want to get down to what are the identifiable facts and objects and points of data which are beyond dispute, at least beyond you know, reasonable dispute. The challenge, however, is in mistaking that for the truth. Why? Because the vast majority of people who shaped their lives according to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov knew none of that. What they knew was that in 1814, a book called Shivchei Abesht, the praises of the Baal Shem Tov, all the legends and stories, all the good nuggets, half of them that I bet you guys know, is published in 1814, approximately 50, 55 years after his death. And this is the personality who actually shapes Chassidut. So we could, we could have an interesting theoretical discussion about how much Shivchei Abesht actually reflects the individual who was Yisrael ben Eliezer Baal Shem Tov. And that might be worthwhile. But do you understand the distinction I'm making? The average Chassid, and we're interested in the history of Chassidut, will shape their life according to those stories and likely believe them to be true. Right? And the other way of saying that is that whether they're true or not, people don't tell those types of stories about you and I. Right? And so therefore, the role which the Baal Shem Tov plays is best communicated in many ways 
by a book like Shivchei Abesh. Nevertheless, we in sifting through can find that he begins his life, as we said, as a, as a somewhat unknown. He's an orphan, right? The community takes care of him. He takes on this role first as a school teacher. Not so great at it, but he's not bad. His kids like him because he's nice, right? He likes to walk the kids back and forth to school and sing songs with them and praises in the woods. He's a little bit of a, uh, you know, distracted child. They find him often off in the woods, staring in the distance, right? He takes on the job of, as the caretaker of the shul, where he's able to sleep all day and, according to legend, study mystic literature at night. Into his life comes the role of the Baal Shem in the person of this, this Rabbi Adam that we spoke about in our last class, who, who appears with a packet of manuscripts and says that his own father had told him to keep this as the spiritual inheritance of one who would come, and he hands it off to the Baal Shem Tov. In our story... This is the Baal Shem Tov's encounter with the documents, or the manuscripts, better said, of the teachings of the Arizal. Remembering that the, 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 the Zohar and the Arizal were seen to be problematic texts. Right? Their full printing actually doesn't occur until much later. Right? They're written in the 16th century, but the full printings, I think I have in my notes, actually the first full printing of Eitzchayim, of the Rav Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal's, compilation of the of Rizal's teachings. I think the first full teaching is in the late 18th century. You can check me on that, but I think that that is the case, right? So, but the key is, is that the rabbinic authorities, notable amongst them the Council of Four Lands, had placed a partial ban on these contents, that one shouldn't learn them until they were 40 and established and older because of the Sabbatean explosion, which they deemed to have emerged, at least in part, from them. But nonetheless, young Israel. Ben Eliezer gets his hands on these things and nevertheless does not reveal himself as a teacher. What he does is hide. He marries through a circumstance which, I'll leave the story, enough stories for later. He marries, his brother-in-law, who is a respectable rabbi, is horrified when he discovers amongst the death papers of his father a, a writ of engagement with this peasant. And he likes to style himself like a peasant you know, wearing un undressed leathers and furs and a broad leather belt, basically like a Polish peasant, um, speaks like a boor and appears to be empty of any Torah, right? And the rabbi then gives his sister to this man, but insists that they get out of town. He gives him a horse, a wagon, and sends them packing up to the Carpathian Mountains, where my family comes from. Um, there, according to tradition, Rabbi Yisrael spends seven years in seclusion, Right? Similar to whom? The Ari, who spent seven years in seclusion on an island in the Nile, returning only to his family on Shabbat. Now, it seems that the Shivchei Besher is self-consciously modeled, or the Baal Shem Tov himself may have self-consciously modeled his behavior on that of the Arizal. But here is we first begin to get a sense of the teachings that are really going to transform the Jewish world. Because what we really have to do, aside from the interest of his stories, is understand why. Why was it? What was the impact? What was so powerful about, it, what, about what it was that this individual taught? Right? Because you can imagine, I haven't been to the Carpathians. Anybody ever been to the Carpathians? Right? Even today, they are reputed to be, yeah, you've been there, they're reputed to be one of the last wilderness left in Europe. Right? Snow-covered peaks, forests, and um, it was probably there. They are on, today, the, the Hungarian-Romanian border country. Transylvania. Ah, oh, everyone knows Transylvania, all right. 
right? Um, I should have said the right word. Um, it's really here, arguably, that, um, that one of his fundamental teachings crystallized, which is Melokola Aretz Kvodo. Melokola Aretz Kvodo. Right? The Pasuk, right? the whole world is filled with God's glory. One of the things about mystics in general, and Hasidim in particular, is often the power of their teachings is, is actually hyper-pshat. It's just taking something absolutely simple and literal. The whole world is filled with God's glory. If the whole world is filled with God's glory, that means you can meet God in the mountains just as easily as you can in the Beit Midrash. Now, I don't think that the average rabbi would have disagreed with that in theory. But in practice, the rabbinic class finds God where? In, in Torah. In Shul also, but less so. They find it in Torah. At this point, European rabbinic culture, basically since the Crusades, the personality of rabbi as Lamdan as master of the intellectual process of learning and teaching Torah, is the organizing principle, the ideal, the social glue, call it what you will. This is what a Jew ought be. So therefore, someone who is not capable of doing that may be able to, in shul, still daven, right? And, and, and they still keep the mitzvot, but they are an am ha'aretz. They're a boor, and therefore get relegated to a lower social status. And that, by the way, is very real. They're not going to marry the rich man's daughter. They're not going to be given the advantages by the community beyond basic support. I mean, Baal was an orphan. The community took care of him. They didn't cast him out. But they didn't elevate him either. They shunted him toward, it's the low-end theory of, of Jewish communal life here. So, but here in the mountains, the Baal Shem Tov is faced with what he experiences as the absolute presence of God. Not only that, but unmediated. I mean, in a certain way, God is more available in the mountains than God is in the Beit Midrash because words get in the way. Right? And this is a big problem as we spoke about the emergence of Pilpul. Remember this? That, that in the mid-16th century, in Polish Torah, this sort of mental gymnastics, this type of Torah which becomes a... Uh, a, an end unto itself of the acrobatic pursuit, not of meaning, but of, of um, virtuosity, which had, had its emergence really in the Tosavist culture back in the 13th century, but has reached a new height in the 16th century, right? Well, the, it can often lead to the type of argument for argument's sake and mental gymnastics, which a lot of people even today find very challenging to, to uh, by, entertain by Torah. I'll tell you, me honestly, I have a huge problem. Can I give you a gripe? One 30-second gripe? I have a huge problem when people get up in shul on Friday night and try to demonstrate their virtuosity in Torah. Okay, maybe if they understand that nobody's listening past five to seven minutes, I'll tolerate it. But, you know, it's not so easy. You've got to really be a virtuoso to do that in five to seven minutes, right? Why am I saying that? Not only because it just irks me. It's because what, what, what's the point? I, I am, Akate, but even beyond that, what is the point? Why are, why are you doing this right now? We're about to pray. And in my eyes, there's only two things you need to do at this time. Shut up or help us. <laughs> and, and in this sense, you, you actually can find shot in the Gemara. You're not supposed to get yourself involved in complicated halakhic thinking before you pray. It's actually, I've, I've had that discussion with one person. It went nowhere. Um, but my point is, is that there in the Carpathian Mountains, 
It was the last time I tried. The, there in the Carpathian Mountains, the Baal Shem Tov was alone. Except he also knew the ultimate truth. I didn't mention it, but his father's parting words to him were, right? Yeah, don't worry, my son. God is always with you. God is always with you, right? Which, on some level, is what helps him establish the psycho-emotional expression of Melokal Art Vodo, the world is filled with God's glory, is a, to, to be a chassid means you're never alone. To be a Jew means you're never alone. To be a chassid means you know you're never alone. Right? So that became his mission, to try to open up the Jews to know that they're never alone. They don't have to go to shul to find God. They don't have to sit in the Beit Midrash to find God. Yes, God is also there. He wasn't excluding that. But actually, you don't have to find God. You just need to open up your eyes and see. Which is, truth be told, not as easy as it sounds. So eventually he comes down from the mountain, um, and he settles in a town called Plust, where he wants to become becomes a, a school teacher. This is the point in his life, it's between, the, we think, about 1730 to 1740, um, where his reputation as a Baal Shem begins to grow. And, and the, in particular, the amulets being written by Rabbi Yisrael were known to be effective far and wide. And if you know a little bit, and we've spoken a little bit about the Sabbatean movement, which, remember, is still going strong at this point, just to give you context, if I'm not mistaken, the Emden Ibshitz controversy began in, like, 1725, um, so, which was all about amulets, and it was part of the rabbinic class eating itself alive over whether someone, Jonathan Ibshitz, who was a major rabbinic figure, could at the same time also be a Sabbatean, meaning could you be a rabbi and a heretic? Right? Um, so, so at the same time, the Baal Shem Tov, much further east, is just proving his efficacy. How? Because apparently it works. And I leave it to you to whether these amulets really worked. Was it replicable and scientific? Could we do a, sort of a, a, a baseline study and, and figure? I don't know. I, I really can't tell you. Although I can tell you that you know, so-called herbal medicine is often actually the product of a thousand years of of accumulated wisdom, so it wouldn't be surprising if his remedies worked. But what I can tell you is that people believed they worked. And, and therefore, they came to him. And when they came to him for the amulets, you know what else he gave them? Wisdom. And this is when his reputation begins to grow, and he becomes not just simply a Baal Shem, which was the master of the name, person who writes effective amulets, but Baal Shem Tov. The sense that there's a goodness radiating from here. And then finally, somewhere between 1740 and 1745, the Baal Shem Tov really ceases to wander. He's in Plus, but he's doing the circuit. He ceases to wander. He moves his home to Mezhbuz in Podolia. And this is when Mezhbuz becomes, a slowly but surely, the center of a growing Hasidic movement. Well, I wouldn't say Hasidic movement. There are Hasidic communities that begin to pop up like mushrooms across Podolia, which is southeastern. Let me see this picture on the map in my mind. More southeastern. Poland, right? Deeper into the Ukraine, not toward the Lithuanian white Russia. Yeah, there was no Ukraine then. Um, yes, today is in the Ukraine. So, so go to Poland, head south and east. You know, anyway, so there was no movement here, and it's actually quite important to emphasize that, is that the Baal Shem Tov was not looking to create a movement. The Baal Shem Tov gathered first, he had a, he had a, a true skill in speaking to everyone, not just the rabbinic class. And then he began to gather, depending on which author you read, either self-consciously target and try to gather sort of the, that second-tier rabbinic leadership 
into his circle to get some sort of rabbinic backing, or the way the Hasidim tell it is that certain people just shook themselves free of the misconceptions that they had and were able to join him and hear his Torah. There's a common theme you'll see in Hasidut. Um, if you read any Hasidic stories, you've certainly encountered it. The, the, the misnagdid, the person who is opposed, like deeply opposed to the Torah of the Baal Shem Tov or the Magid or whatever Rebbe we're talking about, and they come to his court on Shabbat to see what a faker he is and what happens. They're, they're charmed, they're enchanted, they have a, you know, a moment of realization, and poof, they're a chassid, right? Um, so so we, either way it happened is at this point that small communities begin to spring up, and we can say that, um, I think I have my, the numbers here. Oh, no, I have my notes. That actually, it's, uh, there's no way to know. But there are basically groups of chassidim. By the time the Baal Shem Tov dies in 1760, groups of chassidim had begun to pop up throughout eastern Poland and the Ukraine. There's no way to know their numbers. But at this point, the best way to affirm their existence is the anti-Hasidic literature, which had, the, the polemic had already started. You know, people who were opposed you know, in, in the uh, sort of late 18th century is filled with descriptions of the Hasidim who, quote, are quite ignorant of any knowledge, have studied neither the mysteries nor Gemara or legal codes, stripped bare and wailing aloud, prancing upon the hilltop. So, so the, the Baal Shem Tov himself taught many things. But one of the challenges of knowing exactly what came from him, of course, is that he never wrote any of them down. There's a story they say that um, at, at one point, um, someone actually wrote down the Torahs of the Baal Shem Tov while he was alive. And the Besht was walking down the road and he saw a demon approaching him, holding a book in his hand. Right? Well, I mean, I would be alarmed too. Right? And, and as this demon approaches, he asks, obviously, what's his first question? <coughs> oh, so what you reading? Right? So, I wouldn't be my first question. But he says, what's that book you hold in your hand? The demon says to him, this, this is the book that you've written. Right? And the best said that he knew that at that point there was someone who was writing down his Torah. And he gathered all of his followers and asked them, who amongst you has been writing down my Torah? And the, someone admitted it, and he brought out a manuscript. And the Baal Shem Tov looked at it and said, ah, there's not even one single word here that's mine. Meaning the, that there is a sense that what was happening was an oral Torah. That it was not so much a question of content, but was a question of experience. That, that, that what you see consistently in these stories of the Mitnagdim that come to the Baal Shem Tov or the Magid and, and they have this transformative experience, it's usually not, wow, that drasha they gave really changed my understanding of the Pasuk. It's the light in their face. It's the way they're able to identify the pain in your soul. Right? There's, there's a deep element here which comes out of this, the, the tradition of the Baal Shem, who are basically physicians of the soul, a, a role which they claim not only to have received from the Torahs of the Arizal, but where else? Who were the original physicians of the soul in Am Yisrael? The prophets. The prophets. And, and, that should, and the prophets, the Nevi'im, which should strike you as no surprise, there's a letter published at the back of the Toldot Yaakov Yosef, which is a book that we'll speak about by and by. Um, but for now, it's a letter that the Val Shem Tov wrote in 1749-1750. Um, it's one of a, a pair of letters that describe his, his spiritual ascent. Right? That at a certain point, through meditation, as we would call it today, um, the Val Shem Tov ascends higher and higher through the various realms until he comes to the place 
of the Messiah. And he asks the Messiah, what, yeah, like, what, what's holding you back? Right? And the, um, the answer he gets is that by this you shall know, he asks, he asks him how long. He says, by this you shall know the time of my coming when your teaching will be widespread and known throughout the world. And others besides you will be capable of uniting the Holy Spirit and elevating souls like you do. Then all the klepot will have been removed in the propit- I can't even say that word. Propitious hour for salvation will come. Propitious? Oh, I do okay. Thank you. Right? Um, he, he then gave him three sgulo, three sort of um, practices, and three holy names, but the only thing he was given permission to reveal is that when one prays or studies, they should make a unification of the name with every word they speak. Each and every letter contains a universe, souls, godliness. So this elevation of the soul is together with others in which eventually the, the Baal Shem Tov will declare that his primary teacher has been Achiah Shiloni. Achiah Shiloni was a prophet in the time of Yeruvim ben Nevad. If you're familiar with the book of Kings, he is the one that God sent to anoint Yeruvim ben Nevat to be the king of the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the, of the split of the unified kingdom. I'll tell you where to look it up later if you're interested. But he was also according to tradition, the teacher of Elijah. Which means if he taught Elijah and he taught the Baal Shem Tov, then the Baal Shem Tov is like, oh, that makes sense, because you just heard him speak to the Messiah and he received information on how it was we were going to bring about his coming. Right? Let your waters spread outward. Now, today... 20, 20, 57, 80, whatever year you think it is. Looking back on 300 years of development of Hasidut, you can say, wow, this is a really effective. And we'll speak about it as a movement, et cetera. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you hanging with the historical information. But you can imagine how this was received at a time in 1750, right? Jacob Frank was alive and well. It was going to be another seven years before his dispute over the Gemara that we spoke about last class where they ended up burning the Talmud. So word gets out about this, and what are people thinking? Another false messiah. And apparently the Baal Shem Tov himself was concerned about this because in the Shin Chayabesh, he describes another vision, as long as we're talking visions. Um, another vision that um, early in his life, Shabtai Shvi came to the Besh to seek a way to rehabilitate, rehabilitate his soul. So it goes to the story. The dates don't work out, but that's okay. Um, it might have worked out if Baal Shem Tov was two. Um, so Shabtai Sui came to the Besh to seek a way to rehabilitate his soul, which could come about only through the blending of soul with soul, spirit with spirit, being with being. This is what's called Soda Ibur, which we're not going to get into right now, but it's one of the deep elements of um, practical mysticism which came from the Ari down through the Hasidim. Um, the Besh proceeded with great caution because he feared that Shabtai Tzvi was a great evildoer. And once when the Besh was asleep, Shabtai Tzvi, may his name be blotted out, it actually says that here, right, came and tempted him, so he managed to hurl him into the lowest part of the netherworld. And the Besh looked around and found himself together with Jesus of Nazareth on a board called a slate. And the Besh said that there was a spark of the sacred in Shabtai Tzvi, but that Samael the Satan had trapped him in his dungeon. Yeah, huh? Crazy. Um, well, aside from, the, from the, the crazy factor, 
you just heard a story that places Shabtai Tzvi, the Baal Shem Tov, and Jesus of Nazareth all in the same room. Told by Hasidim. What do the three of them have in common? Careful. What do Jesus of Nazareth, the Baal Shem, they all look Jewish? Good. A shiny silver penny Avraham got the first right answer. What else? Don't tell me they're all men. Likely they all had beards. Okay. Also... So, so th- those two go together, meaning that what, all of them were possessed of the idea that they had a revolutionary Torah, which their followers made into a movement. Right? And I think it's a very important distinction, is that none of them could be accused of the sort of, uh, sort of manipulative, uh, or even not less manipulative, sorry, pejorative, of the systematic attempt to create something new. They were all absorbed with this idea that they had a revolutionary Torah. Right, by the way, you know who else was absorbed by the idea that they had a revolutionary Torah? More close to our generation? Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook. Right? Who did not create a movement, but his followers did. Um, the, in, unless you think that this, of course, is just the personal madness of some unhinged individuals, and why would they ever think that the Torah needs to be revolutionized, well, it says it in the book of Jeremiah. Pesach is coming up. It's very important. The 31st chapter of Jeremiah should always be reviewed before Pesach. Why? Because it says, See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, right, declares the Lord. But such is the covenant I will make, yada, 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 right? It says, No longer will they teach one another, saying, Heed the Lord, Right? It goes, it goes on quite further. But the key, the key here is that the idea of a new covenant, which most people associate, of course, with Christianity, is in Jeremiah. That comes from Jeremiah, also in, in Hezkel in its own way. Right? Um, and most importantly, that Chazal, the rabbis in Kohelet Rabbah, say, Torah Adam lamad ba'olam hazeh, hevel hi lifnei Torah tosha Mashiach. The Torah that a person l- learns in this world is like empty vapor when you compare it to the Torah of the Messiah. This idea of Torah to Mashiach, that there's some different Torah, which either will bring about the Messiah or will actually be available once the Messiah comes. You can see it in the Rambam even, by the way. Read read the last two or three halachot in the Mishnah Torah, and you will see the Rambam say more or less the same thing. Right? He's a little bit more normative, so it's a little slower, gradual. But but this sense of the revolution... And what's interesting about the Baal Shem Tov, and this speaks to, by the way, one of the answers to the question that we have, which is why did it work, is that despite the fact that they were so revolutionary, and you can imagine that especially on the heels of the Sabbatean revolt, that people walking around saying that we have access to the Torah of the Messiah was not a popular, you know, not, not to calibrate it to arouse friendly reaction, right? Nevertheless, one of the reasons they succeeded is because they were true revolutionaries. Every true revolutionary and claims to be bringing things back to the place they always ought have been. Remember, a revolution is to come all the way back around to where you began. Right? So, so you know, the American Revolution is a great example. American Revolution was trying to return liberty, which they felt was the true right of Englishmen. They just had to do it by revolting against the king. Right? The king had usurped their rights and they were trying to bring things back to the way they ought to be. Ditto the French Revolution, who the universal rights of man 
had, they had assumptions about man and the state of nature and, and how ecclesiastic and political authority had corrupted, right? And they were going to bring things back around, right? And so the Baal Shem Tov basically says, oh, we're not rabbis, we're children of prophets. It's not that rabbis aren't important, don't get me wrong, you love the rabbis, and you, but, 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 but if you don't understand that we're children of prophets, you might think that, that all we are is rabbis, right? And, and that, therefore this, this need, not even need, this, this deep identification with the prophetic source was oriented to bring Am Yisrael back around to what he saw to be the true nature of Torah. And so now we'll take a couple minutes and hit a couple of the other points of what it was that he was teaching, and then we'll move forward in the flow of history with the, his death and the movement, as you guys rightly pointed, which emerges after his death. Questions or comments before I do? Well, either you're totally confused or you're with me. Um, okay, so a couple, of, aside from this beautiful Malokal Arts Kvodo, which I encourage you to just think of the fact that that means that you're never alone. And the transition between being a Jew and being a Chassid is that a Jew is never alone, a Chassid knows that. And therefore walks in that world in a way which, by the way, it's fear and it's love. No, there's a sense of intimacy and in being held, but there's also a sense that, hey, you're never alone. Meaning, you ne there's no, you're no getting away with it. Right? Like Rabbi Yochanan says on his deathbed, let your fear of God be like your fear of flesh and blood. And students ask him, that much? That's it? He says, yeah, why is a thief break into a house at night, because they don't want to be seen. God sees them, right? right? If you were afraid of being seen by God, as you are afraid of being seen by people, you'd be okay, he says. So in addition to this, there's another very important phrase, the kol darchecha deu, right? No God in all of your ways, imitatia deu. So it's a classic concept in religiosity. Notice, the Baal Shem Tov is not, you know, necessarily offering radical new concepts. What he does is he takes these classic concepts and upgrades them through passion and, and a systematic commitment. Right? And, and the way in which one imitates God is through Dveikut. Of all concepts which existed before Hasidut, but which attained new heights within it, Dveikut is probably the, um, the chief amongst them. Um, that one I will write down. Um, Dvekut, uh, if I were going to spell it in English, I might say Dvekut. It literally means a, a cleaving, right? If you look in the first, first chapter? Yeah, the first chapter of, of, um, uh, of no, it's in the second chapter. The second chapter of, of Breshit, uh, it says that um, a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Right? This is the first usage of that word and becomes the sort of archetypical usage in the sense that there's some mode of intimacy of relationship which is transformative. Right? And so the, the Baal Shem Tov, one of the, again, one of the innovations that he pushes is that Dveikut is not just a state which is attainable through intense learning or meditation or exclusion. It's actually a, a state of being which is attainable at all times. Because if God is always, the world's always if the world is filled with God, and God is always with you, then you can always be intimate. And he goes so far as to say that you should think of God as your shadow, right? God does to you as you do to the world, right? That essentially, and it's very important, right? If God does to you as you do to the world, this is a softening of the way the Arizal presented this whole mythic drama 
that we're living in. Remember the Arizal said that in the beginning, God withdrew and then attempted to shine one ray of light into the world, but the vessels designed for that light shattered, and that those shattered vessels and the sparks of light, that, that we're spending the rest of eternity basically picking up the pieces, right? Trying to fix this process of tikkun, right? And, but th th that means that God is dependent upon humanity to create a world which is redeemed, which means that you're the Messiah, potentially. This is good news until a personality like Shabtai Tzvi comes along and, and actually believes that he is the Messiah. Now, there's a lot of power there, but there's danger. The Baal Shem Tov softens that and says, well, well but God is your shadow. Therefore, you know what you can fix? Your life and everything you come into contact with. And God will respond in that way. He basically takes the plane out of the cosmic into the personal. And this is why, as I mentioned to you guys before, like, even today, one of the strongest appearances of Hasidic Torah outside of the actual like, places like where Hasidic communities is in um, popular psychology and in self-help and personal development. I do it all the time. That's one of the things I use when, in spiritual counseling because there's incredible wealth of insight on the human condition and, and classic Kabbalistic structures, the, the ten spherot as modes of relationship in understanding your own behavior and the way in which you connect or fail to with other people in your life. It's in, 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 in all of that shift of scale from the cosmic to the personal begins with the Baal Shem Tov's desire to be able to bring the Torah to every person where they are. Right? And to teach them that, 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 that cleaving to God is a constant process which is available to everyone. There still remains, as we'll speak about today or going forward, <clears throat> this sort of higher level, the tzaddik, the, of the righteous who are able to affect changes on a greater scale. But this is, becomes, he's laying the groundwork for a mass movement. You guys rightly say he didn't create a mass movement, but his teachings are able to be assimilated in a way in which a mass movement can emerge from them. And last but certainly not least, and obviously, obviously there's much more, but last but certainly not least, joy. You know, they say that um, the Magid of Mezrich, of Dov Ber of Mezrich, was the Baal Shem Tov's chief student. He was originally, he was a rabbinic scholar in the classic mold. Master Talmudist, preacher, he was a Magid, so he was quite experienced speaker, um, held a, a, a certain level of authority in that second tier. He wasn't a, a world-class scholar, Right? And he was an opponent of Hasidut early in his days. And he came to the Baal Shem Tov, as we've said so many times, to pr either to prove him false, or the other version of the story is he came to the Baal Shem Tov as a Baal Shem for healing. Now, why was the Magid of Mezrich looking for healing? Because as a classic Talmudist, rabbinic figure of his period, what else was he involved in? Sigufim, ascetic practices. Right? He would go days on end without eating. He would immerse in cold water. He would roll in the snow. This is a path of religiosity which both comes from the Arizal and also has its roots in, if you recall, the old version of the Hasidim in, in, in Germany, right? the Hasidic Ashkenaz. Right? This, the mortification of the flesh was seen to be the way which the spirit could be freed. The Baal Shem Tov releases him from that whole path. And, and actually teaches him that the, that the ability to experience joy, the, the ability to experience joy, I have a great quote here. I just want to look for it and see how it said, but if I can't find it, I can't find it. Um, one second. I'll give it one more second.
Uh, I, no. Um, the, 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 the sense that um, there's an imminence to God's presence, which the body not only doesn't have to be broken, but can actually provide a gateway to. Because if you're going to find God in nature, that's a physical sensation. You hear the romanticism in it? In it? You're, you, you're moved by the view, by the light in, through the trees, by the reflection off the pond to feel a sense of the imminent presence of God. Right? This, as the Baal Shem Tov, is meant to bring joy. And that he claims that he has come, basically, to, has completed that whole path of mortification and asceticism, and is introducing a way in which a deep engagement with the world, as the place where you can find God, he late atapanui mine, there is nowhere empty of God, Right? This offers a completely different path, which you can imagine also is far more appealing on a mass level. If you're going to join a movement which sits around and sings Nigunim and makes Nechaims on Friday night, or you're going to join a movement where everyone goes out on their own to roll in the snow, I won't ask you to raise your hands, <laughs> but, but I'm willing to bet that our numbers are going to split quite clearly on that. Right? And so the, the Mugid represents a transformation, not just for, for him personally. And he's not only the one, as we'll see momentarily, who actually manages to begin to craft a movement out of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. But um, he is the one who, who sort of embodies this shift away from the ascetic world-rejecting elements, which had become, if not dominant, quite present in, the, in the, the seekers of God amongst Am Yisrael at this point in European culture, and replaces it with this sense of joy and imminence. I, I do have to say that this sense of joy and imminence, of course, is open to the accusation of pantheism. Remember Spinoza is, is, is out there as well. The sense that, that God is everywhere, sounds, and you can find God in nature, sounds awfully close to God is nature. right? But the Baal Shem Tov will maintain this sense of the transcendent God beyond nature. And this is what, I told you there was a fourth, we talked about theism, deism, and pantheism. I told you there was a fourth category. That fourth category is panentheism. I'll give it to you as a word that you can look at. Panentheism. Hang on. Panentheism. Theism. I'm such a bad speller. Um, it, basically, pantheism stops here. It says, God is world. Here's our little blue planet, right? And panentheism says, well, no, the world is in God. Meaning, yes, you can find God everywhere. The world is God. It's just not exclusively, right? That, that, that instead of the world being the place of God, God is the place of the world. So you can have both the transcendent God, who is beyond the world, beyond comprehension, you know, and then you have the imminent, where God is the whole world, and therefore available everywhere at all times. If, yeah, well, think about it. Theism says, here's the world and there's God. Remember, we spoke about the gap. Pantheism says, no, world is God. Panentheism says, no, no, of course, the, the world is God, but God is also more than the world. And we're going to see that this actually lies at the split of, uh, of, of a major, major problem that the Hasidic movement is going to face, but we're not there yet. I'm not sure about joy yet. Yeah. 
it, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing which doesn't actually bear overburdens with words, which is why I, well, which is why I, um, not even skip through it, a, how best to. Well, it's, listen, it's a, it's a sense that if the whole world is an expression of God and you're never alone, then everything that happens, everything you see or you hear, every opportunity you have is an opportunity to know and serve God and you can always connect. And therefore, what, would, what is there to be unhappy about? It's true, psycho-emotionally I may have to fight the challenges of, of pain or lack or you know other psychological issues but ultimately if god is right here right now and there's nothing preventing me from connecting then what would make a chassid more happy than that and furthermore if my body is just as much part of god's plan as my soul then the physical sensations that we associate with joy exercise right uh making lechaim singing Dancing, the things that the Hasidim were seen to be crazy for, right? And furthermore, as you'll see in later developments of Hasidut, there's an understanding that, that we all know now that if you force yourself to smile often enough, you actually have an emotive response to it, which is a strange thing. Or anybody here ever chop wood when they were angry or go running? Like, you ever think about how strange that is? Why on earth should your physical activity have any impact at all on your emotional state? Right? And, and there are physiological reasons that can explain it, but the Baal Shem Tov, what he was pointing out is that you move up a ladder. Right? That you can, it, and it's much easier for the average person to access their experience through their body. Right? He would open the hearts of his chassidim and open their minds to his Torah by singing, by dancing, by making a lechai. Why? Because then the joy moves from the physical to the spiritual. And, and, and this is a well, today, like an oneg Shabbat is nothing strange. But like I, I know I spoke to one of my teachers who, used to, who spoke about the, the house he grew up in, which was a real litvish house, in which they didn't sing zmirot. There were like two like droning like chants that they would do, and that was it. Right? Because that was just not done. Which is not the way, their way in Torah, his father used to say to him. Um, he's a chassid now. Um, the <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. I don't know. That, listen, we'll, we'll get to that. First of all, that, that distrust of the body has its roots well back into rabbinic literature. So, and I think it has its roots even further back. I mean, meaning, and we, we all know that there's a big difference. Purim's coming up, right? There's a big difference between having one lechaim with your friends and feeling like a sense of, of ecstatic enthusiasm and then going about your business to what happens to some people when they begin to drink. And we're all familiar, or even with ourselves, we're all familiar with the fact that this very same path, which can be a, a springboard toward the positive, can also be a slope down into the negative. So I think that that's a very old human experience. In text, I don't know, we'll, we'll see, but I want in the last half hour here to try to lay out some of the, the structure that emerges in the movement. So yeah, see.
It's, it's, listen, it's hard to contain emotion in words, right? And, but at the same time, words are much easier to access. Does it require leadership? Let's talk about that in the movement. So, so other comments or questions before we go into the movement? Yeah, Oscar. Well, part of that was, was um, that once you live a God-saturated life, it's not that suffering doesn't happen. It's that you're able to, you know, basically he's offering, he being the Baal Shem Tov, is offering um, uh, a mythic living. So and there's a grand stage in which you understand that you're living in the end times and these are the birth pangs of Messiah, which is a classic way in which Am Yisrael has always dealt. And that's how I remember that in the second intifada when I was learning in uh, Beit Midrash here in Jerusalem, there was a terrible bombing on, uh, on Kikar Tzion. I don't know if you guys recall, there was a bunch of teenagers who were killed. And I came into Shir on Sunday morning, and I said to the Rav, like, how are we supposed to learn Torah when there's blood in the streets of Jerusalem? And he said, well, you know, this is what we do. This is what we do. So when you can't control the world, you go into the world of a Zion Rav. And he was a Zionist. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, like he also believed in the army and was that. But like, I, what am I going to do right now? Right? And, and, and that relates also to this sense of joy is that you're not only never alone, there's always something you can do. Right? And, and furthermore, the Baal Shem Tov was very big on teaching that where your thoughts are, there you are. Right? Today, it's like the secret and the promise and all these like, you know, positive psychology books. They think they've come across this. Oh, but you look in the Baal Shem Tov and he says consistently in many ways, where your thoughts are, there you are, which is the power of prayer. It's also the power of positive thinking. And it's the power of this mythic consciousness, which is that we're, we can actually transform the world through the way in which we know it. Okay. I want to do some history here. You guys ready? Okay, so, so it, as, as I mentioned, that um, there's two personalities that really uh, we need to understand in order to see how a movement emerges from a personality, basically. Um, now, there's two things that happen right after the Baal Shem Tov dies. As we said, we have the sort of um, death of the, the, death of the four, Council of Four Lands. So that there's basically a vacuum in communal leadership. Not only that, it was, that was in, in um, 1764. Eight years later, in 1772, you have the first partition of Poland. Right? Poland gets divided up between Russia, Austria, and, uh, uh, no, Germany doesn't exist at that point. Prussia, thank you. That was it, right. Um, the, oh, it was up here. <laughs> uh, the, the, which is a big story that we're gonna have to get to. It has plays a huge, that moment, 1772, first partition of Poland, plays a huge role in the coming phase of the Jewish story. For the first time ever, the Russian Empire will have a significant number of Jews. That's a big news. The pale of settlement as we know it will emerge from there. Right? But you know, the incorporation into the, uh, the enlightened absolutism of, of Austria and Prussia will have a huge impact on the Berlin Enlightenment and the rise of a whole Jewish Enlightenment. That's a lot. And for us, for the Hasidim, right, it's going to create a whole new power vacuum into which a new communal movement can truly emerge. So that's an important piece. The other critical piece is the emergence of, um, the emergence of leadership. That when Baal Shem Tov dies, the question of who will lead 
immediately arises. His son, for various reasons, is not seen to be sufficient to the task. Yeah? He had a daughter, actually, and a daughter had a son. So I think I'm thinking, actually thinking of his grandchild. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. That's the one that, that, that you're spoken about, but um, could have been more. Um, the, but the key is that what emerges is a personality as opposed to, um, as opposed to like, like hereditary inheritance, is that it will be more of a spiritual inheritance. Um, the, the person who is chosen, not by all of the students of the Baal Shem Tov, mind you, right? but, but um, the, many people thought it was going to be actually the Toldot Yaakov Yosef. Right, Rav Yaakov Yosef of Polnoina was one of the first rabbinic, sort of uh, one of these second-tier rabbinic authorities who attached himself to the Baal Shem Tov. We're talking already in the mid-18th century. And he added a real weight of Torah knowledge to his teacher's vision and the communal status. He was a community rabbi. Caused a lot of controversy in his own life. Right? So many people assumed that it would actually be the Toldot Yaakov Yosef. It was not. Right? Total Yaakov Yosef, however, does do something very important, which is worth putting our finger on, which has a huge impact. I told you there are two personalities that create the movement. He is one of them, because he's the first in 1780 to publish a first work of Hasidut. Today, there's like a section in every Beit Midrash, not every Beit Midrash, most Beit Midrash that's like Hasidus, right? There's like all these books, and people familiar with the structures, usually according to the partial, although not always. And this all emerged in 1780 when, he, when Rav Yaakov Yosef published Toldot Yaakov Yosef. It was the first collection of the Baal Shem Tov's teaching ever published. He went on to publish several more books. Um, by the way, this provoked the second ban on Chassidut. We'll talk about the first one momentarily. I mean, the, I mean, it was such a radical departure from classic rabbinic literature that it actually provoked a ban on reading it. Um, there's no, I saw nowhere that anyone said that it was burnt. But um, it was certainly not popular. Well, or at the same time, maybe it was, because as soon as you put a ban on it, there's a certain category of people who run out and buy the book, right? Um, now, why did he publish the book? For two fundamental reasons. One, he wanted to bring Baal Shem Tov's teachings to a wider audience. And he was part of the rabbinic class, and what you do is you write the book. That's what you do, right? That makes perfect sense. The second one, however, was he wanted to give an actual detailed presentation of what Hasidut was, because there were a lot of rumors swirling and a lot of anti-Hasidic literature. And one of the reasons, in fact, that the Hasidic movement, the arguments the historians make, that one of the reasons that it actually survived, now think about it, you have a radical religious movement, which is anti-establishment, which is directly opposed by the communal leadership. The odds that it, it's going to survive are quite low. But you know what, what Hasidut does not do? They don't fight back. They don't fight back. There's no counter bans. There's no declaration that everyone who's not a Hasid are, are the sinners of Israel, which you know, we've seen these phases in history past and present, they simply they lay low. Every time a band comes and they're attacked, viciously attacked by the communal leadership, they just they hide under rocks, they stay in the shul, they just, and, and it's one of the reasons that they, that they actually survive. Um, but So he, he publishes this to try to show what Hasidut really is, and also, by the way, to spread their critique of what he calls rabbinic scholasticism. Um, and interestingly enough, at the end of Tolot Yaakov Yosef, it's he it's that, who... Um, publicizes, introduces and publicizes the connection between Achila Shiloni and the Baal Shem Tov. He's the one that publishes the letters that say that the Baal Shem Tov learned from Achila Shiloni, and he drives the point straight home that, that this is a continuation of the path of the prophets, which is simultaneously the most conservative thing you can say, right? I mean, hey, like, we're just doing it old style, folks, right? 
at the same time, it's quite radical, right? And, and, and that power is also part of the appeal. So, so um, he was not, nevertheless, despite his status, he was not destined to in, be the inheritor. That fell to Rabbi Dov Ber ben Abraham of Mezris, right? Um, who, as I mentioned to you, he was a classic rabbinic figure, um, master of both hidden and real Torah, I meaning he learned Kabbalah and Gemara. He was a Magid, so he was well-versed in traveling and, and in speaking, yeah. Oh, I can actually, I can probably explain that best with the story that they say in the name of Baal Shem Tov. They say that um, there was an apprentice blacksmith who, after he learned his trade from his master, he, um, he, he made his way to the kingdom, and he actually got a job with the king. Right? And as he enters into his smithy, he's made a list for himself of everything he needs to do, how he should pump the bellows, how he should secure the anvil, how he should wield the hammer, he left nothing out. However, when he comes to show up the first day at work in the king's palace, he realizes he can't do anything. They let it go for one day, two days, third day. He's driven out of the palace. Why? Because he's forgotten to write down one simple thing. How to light the spark. Right? And it, so, therefore, he had to return to his master or to be reminded of the first principle that he'd forgotten. That's the fundamental contention that, that the Toldot Yaakov Yosef and the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid and most of the tzaddikim of the first three generations made. Of course you need this knowledge. You can't build a world without it. But you've got nothing if you can't light that spark. Right? The Magid used to say that, that um, people would come to him as a box of candles and, and they would leave as, as light. Right? And, and, and so this is the power of what was able to transform the Baal Shem Tov's ideas, or his way, into an actual movement. Right? So there's a critical, though, that it happened to be the Magid, because the Magid was not a force of Mezhbaz. The, the center of gravity shifts from the Ukraine. He's from Mezricht, which is in Volhynia. It's a northward, much closer to the Lithuanian white Russian border, which means, first of all, there's just a gravitational shift. Second of all, that is the culture of rabbinic, classic rabbinic litvish, or what will become nagdish Judaism, right? To the point that, that soon there will actually be a Hasidic minion in Vilna itself, right? And that was, is going to cause a particular problem. So, but, but what does the Magid do? So the Magid gathers a whole sort of um, circle of students around him. But the Magid has a, a, either instinctively or was trained or who knows what, had a real sense for what it took to create a sustainable movement. He trained and he de decentralized. He gathered personalities like Rav Levi Yitzhak Mirbirchev, right, the Kedushas Levi, Rav Nachum Chernobyl, Rav Elimelech Milizens, Rav Aaron of Karlin. If you're familiar with Hasidut, just imagine these people all sitting around the same table. Rav Mendel, Menachem Mendel Vivetsk, and of course Rav Shnir Zalman of Liadi, the, the, the Baltania, the Alta Rebbe of, of Chabad Chassidut, all were his students. And as each one came into their own, you know what he did? He sent them somewhere else to create their own circle. And in doing this, that was the power of train and decentralize, right? He was not looking to be the leader of a centralized movement. He was looking to create students who themselves could be leaders wherever they were. Did that get somewhere else? Did that get back 
back to where they were from, back to where they were from. Um, and this really is what introduces um, the model of a rabbit or a tzaddik into the full structure of chassidut. Right? There, there is this personality which sits at the center. It's not unique. If you think about it, every Beit Midrash that thrives at this point, and remember, there is no yeshiva in the classic model in the European world today. At, at this point, the yeshiva is coming in another 50 years or so. That will be a product of a different process we'll speak about. There's Bati Midrash. You know, communities just come together to learn in some shul or some building that they build centered around a personality. That's not unique. But, but here, because of the nature of the Torah which is being taught and the charismatic and the, the sort of virtuosity plus the element of the Baal Shem, of the, 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 the healer of the soul, right? the person who's able to actually solve your problems in this world and the next, as they say, right? um, that, that that institution of the Rebbe is going to be both one of the greatest powers, the greatest strengths, and the greatest liabilities that Chassidut will face. What's its strength? Well, the, a charismatic leader like a Rebbe is, is successful in negotiating one of the critical tensions that rabbinic, traditional rabbinic leadership had failed to negotiate. Because on one hand, just like traditional leadership, they maintain an elevated status, the Rebbe. Right? And that's important to be a leader, both in their learning and in their personal authority, they have that status. But on the other hand, they always strove to embody that teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, which came down in the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, when he says, when the tzaddik is isolated on the highest rung, he has no point of contact with the community of the people. Only when he stands on the lowest rung is he able to help them rise up. Right? That, the, that the tzaddik is meant to be a connector between heaven and earth. This is something you find in Torah in many places, especially in Chassidut, that there always has to be something connected in Shemaim Ba'aretz. Right? And that the role of the tzaddik is to do that for the Hasidim. But what the told Yaakov Yosef just told you, in order to do that, you have to be as much Ba'aretz as you are B'Shemaim. Right? You, 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 you can't be intellectually or spiritually or materially completely separate. And so the, the, that model was successful, right? Interestingly enough, um, it also will be successful that as the instruments of state, especially in Prussia and Austria, move toward absolutism and see formal communal structures within the Jewish community as competitors for their powers, the informal model centered around a personality who's not looking to collect taxes and, and create the sort of infrastructure that like the four lands represented, that informal model will prove a lot more resilient in, in its ability to negotiate power with the state, which is, at the same time, um, the emergence of the personality cult and what some historians call practical tariqism, meaning uh, on some level, it's a good living. If all your followers come to you, and are willing to pay cash when they show up, and, and cash on, on, on demand for miracles, etc. Like, you know, that, that it doesn't take even an unscrupulous personality to, to get taken down quickly by that. And this will be one of the major criticisms that are leveled against the Hasidim from that time to this very day, right? Um, the other one being that, that having encountered the problem of the cult of personality with, with sorry, with the, uh, with the Shabtai Tzvi, there's a fear that, that these types of personalities are quasi-Messianic personalities, which is why, interestingly enough, it's fascinating that what's happened with the memory of the Lubavitcher Rebbe hasn't gotten more resistance from within traditional Judaism than it has. There were a few people who tried to claim that this pushed Chabad out of its normative Jewish stance, but they failed, largely because of the power of the Chabad institution. But um, that's a discussion we can have another time. So, so this 
move toward decentralization is really what allow, and creating a model centered on a personality, which would then cultivate a prayer community, meeting the practical needs, right? Goes hand again with an understanding of that there's a vast, uh, I don't know, majority, there's a vast element of the Jewish community which is underserved. Rural Jewry, poor Jewry, the people who can't access the knowledge elite. And not only can't access them, don't participate in the activities that the knowledge elite value. Everybody shows up in shul. Not everybody makes it to the Beit Midrash. So therefore, if you as a leader deem what happens in the Beit Midrash to be what is actually important, then you pay attention to who's in the Beit Midrash. Okay, you're in shul. Shkayach. You have to be in shul. Right? Whereas for the Hasidim, the act of prayer, the, the, the Hasidim did not downgrade Torah learning. That's something that the Misnagdim accused them of. They upgraded prayer. Right? It's important to understand that. But in that upgrade, by the way, was one of the major social conflicts that they encountered in. Because, of course, prayer intersects with Torah in many ways. One of the most important ways it intersects with it, or I don't know, important, one of the most powerful ways it intersects is in Zmanim, the proper times for which you write. You guys, anybody here have a digital clock in the shul where you dive? Raise your hand if you have a digital clock in the shul where you right? right? So, so, I mean, that digital clock is expressive of a technological advance, which obviously was absurd in the mind of the Gemara. And it's also expressive of a powerful and problematic side of Zmanim, which is that precision. If there's a time, then we want to know what time exactly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Hasidim said, nice, but are you ready to pray? If you're not ready to pray, what's the point of making sure you do it on time? Right? In fact, what if I decide to take my time, and even if the time for proper prayer passes, but I'm still not quite ready, I continue to prepare myself so I will argue that I have now actually achieved more with my prayer. You will argue that I have violated the law, and therefore my prayer is actually a sin. And you can see, since prayer remains one of the major social functions, so to speak, that all Jews do together at this point, that this is a source of major controversy. The only story told about the Baal Shem Tov in connection with the Four Lands Council, which is likely it never happened since there's no real evidence that he, that he met them, but is the story that he was called before them basically to test whether he was really a faker and, uh, and sort of like, you know, a charlatan or whether he was actually a religious leader. And they asked him what the law was in a case where you'd forgotten to say Yalev Yavo on Rosh Chodesh, on the new moon. I won't ask anybody to answer the question. But this is a classic rabbinic question, which you can, like, really go to town on if you want to. And it's expected that one display their virtuosity. You know what his answer was? He says it's an irrelevant question because you're more likely to forget an absolutely critical obligation than I am to forget what I'm supposed to pray what. Yeah. That says it all, right? Which is, is you, you completely misunderstand. This is not a technical issue when we pray. Right? That, 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 that's like forgetting to say hello to my wife when I walk into the house. That would be speak, not a technical violation, but a fundamental flaw in our relationship. Right? And, and, and so when the Hasidim are fighting to upgrade prayer, it's not to the detriment of Torah. It's an understanding that this is an equally important mode of relationship with God. So the Magid sends his disciples out to create prayer communities. The other place, interestingly enough, where they also begin to make very serious inroads is in Shechita. And this actually leads us to the first major conflict that we have in the written record, which is known as the Shechita band. One of the earliest bands recorded against the Hasidim, 
Shechita, ritual slaughter, if, if people aren't familiar, right? One of the earliest bands recorded against the Hasidim comes in the town of Brody, and it reads like this. Anyone who from this day forward goes out in white clothing will be stripped in the middle of the street and become subject to public scorn and derision. If a guest arrives in our community who refuses to eat meat slaughtered by the regular slaughterers or practices some new custom, his host must inform the community leader so he may be cast out and expelled from the city. Now, wh what? And what's the connection to meat and white clothing? Well, the white clothing is what? It's the, this Kabbalistic tradition, which even this day you can see, of wearing white on Shabbat and going out to greet you know, the, the Sabbath queen. But what's with the meat? Well, in general, I hope people know that Jewish law mandates that the act of slaughter be as painless as possible, and therefore knives are sharpened to a razor-fine point. However, there's a problem. It's always a problem, right? right? Which is that the, if there is a nick in the blade, then when the blade passes through the, the esophagus and the, and the windpipe, the esophagus and the trachea, yeah, um, it will tear instead of slicing, and that's considered a nivella. You've now made this not kosher. Now, the key is if you sharpen a knife too much, it actually, the edge becomes weakened, and it's more prone to nicks. Now, this may sound like hair splitting, pun intended, but, um, but the early Hasidim insisted that, that shochtim, that the ritual slaughterers, would not only sharpen their knives with stones, but they would pass them over a leather strop, picture like the old school barbers, right, over a leather strop after using the grindstone in order to get the sharpest possible blade, despite the risk that that blade might then have a nick from the animal's flesh. That's the key, is that, is that it, you have to go through the flesh before you actually get to the, the windpipe and the esophagus. So therefore, you can never, it's a question, like what if the knife was nicked before you did the slaughter? Um, so, and that insistence was based on their belief that there were certain souls that are reincarnated in the bodies of cows and chickens in order to achieve their final tikkun, their final fixing, right? And they wanted those souls to suffer as little as possible when they left the world, right? Now, what's interesting is that the communal rabbinate may or may not have shared this belief in, in uh, reincarnation. That's not, a, it may sound strange to you and I, but it was not an uncommon belief. It's rooted in classic Jewish one branch of classic Jewish thought, certainly in the Arizal, right? But what they were quite firm on is that they wanted to keep control of slaughter of meat because it was a major source. The tax on kosher meat was one of the most important sources of income for Jewish communities in Poland at the time of the rise of the Hasidut, right? That was the primary way that they leveled taxes. So therefore, uh, a person who comes into town and refuses to eat the meat is already suspect because there's a whole holier-than-thou thing that none of us like, right? But then, when they set up a competing slaughter, now it's an economic issue, right? Now you're dealing with competition. And, in, and indeed, um, it's, a, it's a basically, I, mean, I wouldn't even call it indirect challenge. It's a more or less direct challenge to communal authority. And, and so here we have, the, there's not so many written records of the bands, but the earliest one we have here is, is around Shechita, and it shows you again how Hasidut, in a mix of um, an innovative attempt to take like mystical traditions and put them into everyday life, because I could be reincarnated as a cow, I'd prefer it if my death were quick and neat, right? Um, and an understanding 
that real power and community lay in that second tier amongst the slaughterers and the preachers. And, and you, if you're gonna try to challenge the top tier, forget it, you can't break that hold. They, call, they control the courts, they got the money. But you control the meat trade, that's a lot of power. So one last, I got five minutes left, I'm gonna tell the story of one more, perhaps more fundamental band. No, to this day there's Chabad Shechita. I don't know what it's become now, but those, well, the, the knives they were using were steel. Yeah. The knives they were using were steel. The knives they were using were steel. And the, it, it, it maybe in the 18th century, you're saying that's not steel? I don't know. Could be. I don't, I don't know what the difference in Chabad Shechita is today. I, that I don't know. No, 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 I'm not, it's not my, it's not my field. What? Could be, that could just be the extent of it. Uh, that's an interesting question, I'll look into it. That's an interesting question, but, but I got five minutes, I just want to tell a little bit about the Gras, because there's a much bigger band. I mean, the Brody Grand, the, the Brody Band was a small local issue which seemed to be based on the financial issue, but there's a much bigger, I mean, in the end of the day, in, in 17, I think it's 1778, if I'm not mistaken about the year, um, the, the Graal will actually participate in a ban on all of Chassidut, which could have been a complete split in Am Yisrael. So who was the Graal? So Rav Eliyahu ben Shlomo Zalman. He was born in 1720, lives all the way to 1792. Um, he's from Vilna, hence the fact that he's known as the Vilna Gaon, the genius of Vilna. Now Vilna was part of the Polish kingdom until that split in 1772, um, and it was whole, home to one of the largest Jewish communities in the Polish community, and it's the heart of what we today think of as the Litvish way of life. That absolute dedication to tradition in the way in which Torah has been learned and practiced for generations, but it's an intensely intellectual religious culture, right? And um, the sort of early Hasidim found very little traction in Vilna. Like I told you, the Baal Shem Tov was down in the Ukraine right, with, with the, the simple folks, so to speak. Right? Up there in Vilna, they scoffed at the idea. But when leadership moved to the Magid and it was, went further north, now they basically had a bridgehead into the uh, more Litvish world. Now, the Grah was, had been recognized as a genius from his earliest days. And legend has it that he'd memorized the Tanakh by age four, that he'd begun mastering the whole, the whole sections of the Talmud by age seven. I don't know, but we, what we do know is that by the time he was 20, the greatest rabbis of Europe were already submitting their most difficult questions to him. And it's important to notice he had no official capacity. No official capacity. He wasn't a community rabbi. He, he didn't have a yeshiva. It wasn't nothing. It wasn't an avbeit din. Nothing, nothing, nothing. He just was the Vilna Gaon. And that's important both because you should understand his personality and because what follows is not a struggle for communal power. Because if it were, the Graal wouldn't have been the central figure. In fact, many, it seems, when you look closely, many of the communal heads who used the Gras authority would have been far less combative with the Hasidim because they were out there in the field and understood that this was a, a delicate situation. And within, within 50 years, with the rise of modernity, the Hasidim are going to become part of orthodoxy. Don't forget that. Right? Um, the, the, so, but, but for now, 50, yeah, 50 years, 50, 60 years. Um, but for now, the Gras is also known, by the way, he was famous for that late era as rejecting the Shulchan Aruch as an absolutely binding authority. I mean, he saw it as one of the more important works of its generation, 
but he was, a, he was the only binding authority he, wrote, he recognized, right? Um, he also was an advocate of using modern science, mathematics, you know, et cetera, in order to understand Torah. Um, he was a mystic. Many people aren't aware of that. His mystical works were mostly kept hidden by his students, published later in his life. But what, what I'm getting at is that on the uh, on bottom line is that the Grah was a real chassid. He was a true genius and master of Torah and a deep ascetic mystic, right? And, and in many ways, it seems he just saw these other people as cheap imitations, dabbling in that which they did not really understand. And that's why in the early 1770s, when a group of Hasidim actually emerged in Vilna itself, like behind enemy lines, as it were, right, um, that the following ban was issued. Our brethren, sons of Israel, as you know, new people have appeared unimagined by our forefathers. Notice, unimagined by our forefathers, not the children of prophets. They associate amongst themselves, and their ways are different from other children of Israel in their liturgy. That associate amongst themselves right now, right before Purim, lands very, very harsh, right? They behave in a crazed manner and say that their thoughts wander in all worlds. They belittle the study of the Torah and repeatedly claim that one could not study much nor deeply regret one's transgressions. One should not, sorry. Therefore, we've come to inform our brethren, children of Israel, from near and far, to sound to them the voice of excommunication and banishment until they themselves repent completely. Right? The Graal put his authority on that ban. Letters were sent to all the large communities of Polish Jewry, urging them to follow in their footsteps. Now, it's 1245, which means I'm going to stop there. But I want you to see that the question, the question that, that we have is that considering the fact that such a powerful voice of leadership in the religious Jewry of Europe just opened up the heavy artillery. How is it that Hasidut not only survived, but it thrived? And we'll have to pick up that question next week. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.